Welcome to today's Workplace, a podcast created to keep employers current on the latest employment law trends while providing proactive solutions to the everyday issues arising in today's rapidly changing workplace. Is your business prepared for today's workplace? Let's find out with your hosts, Barbara Johnson and Belinda Reed Shannon. So many people in this country have been severely impacted because of COVID-19. And many of us have been dealing with working from home for more than four months because of the virus. Yet a lot of misinformation abounds and it's caused an unprecedented disruption to society and business globally. Just as we thought we were ready to open things up and start returning to work from home to the workplace, there have been tremendous spikes in some areas of the country. Before we examine the specific impact of COVID-19 on the workplace, we want to have a way to put it all in perspective and understand what is this really about. And so today we have a very special guest who's going to provide us with a lot of information and a lot of perspective on what we know today as COVID-19. So Barbara, why don't you introduce our very special guest today? Thank you so much, Belinda. We are so fortunate today to have with us Dr. H. Wesley Clark. He's the Dean's Executive Professor at Santa Clara University. And Dr. Clark, as I said, has just the the perfect background because not only does he have a bachelor's degree in chemistry from Wayne State University and a a medical degree from the University of Michigan School of Medicine. He also has a master's in public health um, that he obtained from the University of Michigan School of Public Health. And on top of that, he has a law degree from Harvard University. So as I said, the perfect person to um, talk with us today as we explore some of the scientific issues and public health issues around COVID-19. I agree, Barbara. That sounds like a perfect background for this discussion. Hello, Dr. Clark. Hello, Linda. Hi. How are you? I'm doing great. I'm doing great. I think the best way for us to get started is for you to explain, for those of us who are the non-scientists in our listening audience, Why don't you tell us what exactly is COVID-19? Well, COVID-19 is the name of the disease caused by a virus called SARS-CoV-2. COVID-19 was so named because it was first reported in 2019 and the name was assigned to it by the World Health Organization. It is a member of what is called the coronavirus family. And as a result, it is the SARS component, which is severe acute respiratory syndrome. And it's uh, the COVID-19, the second COVID. So when we were first made aware of it, what was the reaction in the scientific community? Well, we weren't made aware of it until uh, December of 2019 when China alerted the WHO on a cluster of uh, pneumonia cases of uh, unknown origin. This was in Wuhan, China. Mm -hmm. And then WHO by January realized that we were dealing with this new virus or novel virus uh, of the coronavirus family 
and it was uh, labeled, um, as I mentioned. So then in January of uh, 2020, we had the first confirmed case of COVID-19 outside of China. It happened in, in Thailand, and it was to a traveler who had visited uh, uh, China. Uh, by February, we had a confirmed case outside of uh, China uh, in the Philippines of a Chinese man from Wuhan. And then, of course, we've continued to have cases in multiple countries around the world. And February 14th, Egypt reported its first case. And then we've had cases reported in Iran and Italy. And, and then, of course, uh, just about every country um, in the world. So this is something that, you know, immediately was recognized as having global impact and not just any one country. Well, very quickly became, we very quickly became aware of the global impact by being able to track the presentation of the virus in different countries. And so by March, the WHO had labeled this a pandemic mid-March. And by pandemic, I mean this was a disease that was occurring in multiple countries and um, needed to be uh, viewed in that context. Because you also had to step up your assessment of people who presented in the emergency rooms for various uh, reasons associated with this. Did, did At that time, did the World, World Health Organization have any idea how fast it this was spreading, so they knew it was presenting in uh, global communities everywhere. But did they have any idea how rapidly it was spreading uh, within any one area? Well, certainly given the historical experiences with these respiratory infections, they became aware by mid-January that uh, this was exactly happening, as you pointed out, as, as I pointed out, people who had been in Wuhan, had traveled to other places, wound up symptomatic. So in January of 2019, WHO declared the outbreak a global public health emergency because by that time, more than 9,000 cases were reported uh, worldwide, including 13 countries uh, outside of China. So, and then February 2nd, the first recorded death outside of China was reported, as I mentioned, in the Philippines. So if you had multiple cases, multiple countries, and then people were reported dying outside of China. So yeah, I think WHO was very much aware. But remember, it's late December. And so by, you know, essentially 30 days later, that gives you uh, a sense of how rapid this and how infectious this disease was, or is actually, not was, still is. Okay. Now, at, at what point did we officially have a pandemic? And tell us what is a pandemic? The difference between a, a pandemic and an epidemic is not clear. It's a little vague. Generally, an epidemic, uh, which also doesn't have a precise definition, is when you've got multiple jurisdictions and a lot of people who uh, are affected by uh, a, a condition. And 
Historically, it's been an infectious disease, but we've heard the phrase epidemic applied to opioid overdose. We've heard that phrase applied to other circumstances. A pandemic, of course, would suggest a more global presentation, multiple countries, and uh, as well as uh, many people in multiple countries. So the key issue is it's happening in a lot of places to a lot of people. But let's talk about how COVID-19 affects people. What are the symptoms and have, has our understanding of the symptoms evolved over time? And that's, I'm glad you raised that question because, again, you've got a rapidly evolving situation where, first of all, we have no prior experience. The medical community, the epidemiologic community had no prior experience with uh, this particular virus. It is called a novel coronavirus for that reason. The word novel meant that it had not happened in uh, human beings before. So the symptoms that appear two to 14 days after exposure to the virus include fever, chills, cough, shortness of breath, difficulty breathing, fatigue, muscle or body aches, headaches, loss of taste or smell, uh, sore throat, congestion or runny nose, uh, nausea, vomiting, and diarrhea. The sort of classical symptoms seen in emergency rooms would be trouble breathing, uh, persistent pain in the chest, and some sense of uh, confusion, inability to wake, uh, to stay awake or to um, get to sleep, and then bluish lips showing some sense of oxygen, low oxygen in a person's blood. And what is the progression of the disease? I mean, we know that it's a disease that actually can kill you, but how does it progress? Well, again, most people just have the, uh, the symptoms that I talked about in terms of the fever, the headache, uh, the shortness of breath, and they get better. So roughly 80 to 85% of people have symptoms that uh, trouble them, but they get better. In fact, that's part of the problem because most people treat it like the regular flu that many of us have had and have treated uh, symptomatically, maybe with a decongestant, maybe with uh, uh, an analgesic like Tylenol or an aspirin. But there, as it progresses, you start getting the increased difficulty with breathing. And as I mentioned, uh, sort of physical signs like uh, blue lips or, um, and so you wind up going to the emergency room because you can't uh, breathe. And then it gets, uh, it either gets better or worse, but mostly the respiratory problems. Now, the disease can manifest itself in, uh, in a minority of people uh, and a full range of things because it can affect multiple organ systems. And that's something that we have to keep in mind. It isn't just the pulmonary issues that you can have multiple organ systems involved, your heart, uh, as well as your lung and uh, other organs. So when you ask how about the disease progression? You want to look at the full range of, of the clinical presentation. Uh, I was just going to ask, so once we identify this as being a pandemic, tell us a little bit more about how the Centers for Disease Control here in the United States and the World, World Health Organization, how did they respond, start working together, um, and start really defining 
how we should, as a society, respond. The, historically, the CDC has worked with WHO, and in fact, CDC often shared staff people with WHO. And in the past, uh, the United States had a, an office in China that would have recorded these kinds of things, but apparently that was changed for reasons that are not clear to me, but as a result, there was a little delay. So nevertheless, WHO did report to the federal government through the CDC. The CDC is tasked with being the recipient of this kind of information, and it works with the respective states in the United States. So as well, because each state has its own health department. We don't have a federal system of public health per se. Uh, each state, each government, each state government is responsible for public health within that jurisdiction. So you have slightly different approaches to public health in each state. Nevertheless, CDC does use its uh, platform to coordinate information with uh, health officials in uh, both states and counties. Remember, in some jurisdictions, mm -hmm. counties play a major role in terms of deciding what goes on in public health. It depends on how large that particular county is. County health departments and state health departments all work closely with the CDC to make sure that adequate information is available and that something that's happening in New York uh, that might uh, harbinger something that's going to happen in California, that information is shared. And you need a central clearinghouse for that information. Remember, in the modern environment, people travel all the time, airplanes, mm -hmm. they were moving back and forth. So when you're dealing with an infectious disease, you're dealing with the disease that moves across boundaries. And so while we don't have a regulatory central authority at the federal level because public health is a state-based responsibility, we do have the federal government sharing information, coordinating information, and making sure that information is readily available to state authorities and to county authorities. And that is a role that the CDC has. CDC also works at the federal level with the Food and Drug Administration, particularly when you're dealing with things like vaccines or diagnostic tests that uh, have to be developed. So in the case of uh, SARS-CoV-2, we needed to have a diagnostic test. So by mid-February, there were insufficient diagnostic tests available. The CDC did have an effort to develop diagnostic tests, and that apparently was a little slow because it has its own laboratories and working with the FDA. Uh, it wasn't until uh, later in the month that they allowed state health departments to pursue uh, the diagnostic tests um, so that we could determine the presence and prevalence of uh, SARS-CoV-2 or COVID-19 within our system. Dr. Clark, talk with us about COVID-19 and how it impacts people of different ages differently. There seems to be a lot of confusion about, the, about that out there. The idea that young people can't get COVID-19, that older people get COVID-19 more, that children don't get COVID-19. Help us understand kind of what happens from an age perspective with respect to the risk of um, 
contracting COVID-19? Well, I, I, I think it's safe to say that anybody can get COVID-19. Now, what your question suggests is they, there is a difference in the clinical presentation and there are a difference in the risk factors. So you start off with anybody can get it and the fiction that uh, young people don't get it is causing a major problem. So young people get it. And the major problem is if you are an asymptomatic carrier, or even if you're symptomatic, but your symptoms aren't that severe, you're walking around spreading the disease. And that's a problem. People who are immunocompromised, which tend to be older people, in some cases, people with other medical conditions like diabetes, or cancer, or hypertension, et cetera, what you wind up with is anybody along the age spectrum. So we have the most severe impact is with those who are very old. And then it goes from very old on the way down to very young. So children can get it. Young adults, 18 to 29, tend to be more mobile. And a lot of them believe that they can't get it. They can, right. and they do. When and you look, they did. <laughs> and they did. When you get confirmed cases, you find that uh, in one study, the largest cohort of confirmed COVID-19 cases was in the age range of 50 to 64. So they had over, at the time, they had over 484,000. But the next largest cohort was in the 18 to 29. They had 339,000. So there were fewer cases in the older population in part because there was um, people started to isolate, but the death rate for people who are older, if you're greater than um, age, if you're 85 or older, the death rate is something like 300 uh, per thousand cases versus if you're 18 to 29, the death rate is like 1.1 deaths per a thousand cases, Uh, which points out that anybody can get it, anybody can get sick, but uh, older people tend to get sicker. Now, the, the notion of the asymptomatic carrier is that these young people who are often dependent on older people for resources uh, may wind up, uh, shall we say, compromising the health of those older people. They can't work and therefore they can't get support. So. Yeah. So you talked about, you know, anybody can get it from an age standpoint, but at this point, you know, f- five, six months into uh, dealing with this this COVID-19, at least in the United States, we're seeing trends where certain racial or ethnic demographics are being impacted greater than other communities. And can you just, before we move from this topic, can you just share a little bit about what, why that is? Well, we have to keep if anybody can catch it. With a severe acute respiratory syndrome. So that means the next question is not only which age group, but the kinds of physical sensitivities you have. So if you've got a situation where people are living more closely together, you've got a situation where people's health is not uh, as uh, um, good as other people, then what we've wound up having is uh, African-Americans and Hispanics, uh, as well as I've mentioned uh, senior citizens, Um, have uh, a a disproportionate impact. You also have the issue of nutrition, uh, food deserts. So you've got these systemic inequities in our economy. Uh, 
Then finally, if you're living in tenement houses or close proximity, then you're more likely to get it. And then then you've got people in the criminal justice system, which are disproportionately uh, Hispanic and African-American in terms of dormitory facilities within the penal system, so they can get it. So we do have some uh, structural inequities in our economy and in our society, Mm -hmm. which then leaves people of color, poor people, at greater risk. I see. Thank you. So how do we stop or slow down the spread of the disease? And it's interesting, as I think about it, back in March, where everybody kind of turned on a dime and people started working from home, I personally had this view, okay, we'll be here for a little bit. And, you know, then by June, July, everything's good. And we're all going to be back out there. And we've heard a lot about flattening the curve. So help us understand first of all, what flattening the curve means. And then secondly, what we're seeing in terms of our ability to stop or slow down the progression of this disease. Well, the whole notion of flattening the curve is the notion that was developed from the experiences of 1918 from the Spanish flu, which was also a worldwide uh, pandemic. You get the healthcare system gets overwhelmed by presentations. People get sick. Uh, That minority of people who really get sick, they show up in the emergency room. They require uh, additional resources. They require the hospital, the clinic to have what's called personal protective equipment. And so you get this reallocation of resources. So what you don't want is uh, a a highly infectious disease to spread and increase the demand on those facilities. What they were trying to achieve with what's sometimes called the lockdowns, the stay-at-home orders, however you want to to characterize it, is to um, reduce the risk that people have getting uh, exposed. Uh, You also had the issue of wearing the mask. Initially, there was some question about whether you should wear masks, and then it became clear that you needed to wear a mask because that question surfaced because we did not appreciate the infectivity of um, uh, SARS-CoV-2. We just most recently, within the past three or four weeks, came to the conclusion that it was airborne. We didn't know that at the time. So the mask actually serves an additional purpose. But the key issue with this is, can you get citizens to cooperate? It all turns on the behavior of people. And as you pointed out, we all got tired of being locked down, shut out, shut down. Uh, They closed down our restaurants and we all wanted to go out and have uh, a good meal. They closed down the bars and we wanted to go out and have a drink. (laughs) <laughs> they uh, closed down parks and we wanted to play uh, baseball mm-hmm. or soccer or football or tennis. They just totally shut down the ability to socialize with anybody outside of your immediate family. Indeed, indeed. And <laughs> having done so, you know, we sort of hemmed and hawed and hemmed and hawed. Then it became political. But The undercurrents were we needed people to come to grips with the fact that uh, we needed to change our behavior, that an infectious disease that causes for a minority of people some fairly profound conditions can um, be devastating to the community. 
And so after two months, politicians relented. And hence we had um, the uh, relaxation of these rules. The epidemiologists had predicted a wave. First wave would go, would subside because if the lockdown, the uh, isolation orders, the stay-at-home orders uh, worked, it, the disease would subside. And then later we would have uh, another wave, but uh, that would come, say, in the fall or in the winter. Unfortunately, we're not moving from the first wave to the second wave. It's one great big wave. So because uh, people started showing up, uh, they made political statements, they had protests. Uh, and in other communities, they said, well, you know, we're not political. We don't care about the protests, but we're going to the beach. The sun's out, the weather's mm -hmm. nice, it's going <laughs> to hang. Uh, and so those, you had know, combinations of protests. Then we had other protests happening because of social discord in our community. So uh, want to go back to work. I'm tired of being at home. It's the political agenda or I want to go swimming. We found any number of reasons to go back to uh, the status quo ante. And that meant the disease was spread. So some jurisdictions said you have to wear a mask. Other jurisdictions said you didn't. Some jurisdictions said um, uh, you should stay at home. Other jurisdictions said, well, we're not sure. Most recently, one state said that uh, we were not going to allow the counties to, to impose masks on our communities. Nobody needs to wear a mask. Well, it's an infectious disease that's spread by people talking to each other and spitting when they talk or breathing when they talk. Or sneezing. Or sneezing <laughs> yeah. or coughing. So, you know, you, I don't know if you, those of you who are older will not remember the Peanuts cartoon, a kid called uh, Pigpen. Yeah. And this cloud around <laughs> this, this swirl, swirl yeah. of dust right. and, and debris. Well, you should think of uh, COVID as the same thing. If you, when you enter, walk into a room, you've got this little uh, aura of <laughs> infectious materials around you, and the mask keeps that contained. You don't. So, it, other so the ma the mask helps you keep your germs to yourself. And. Yes, and it keeps you from being exposed to other people's germs. So you okay. keep yours to yourself, and you're not exposed to other people's germs. So it's a twofer. Your, your stuff stays with you, other people's stuff stays with them, and so you are not exposed. And that is a very important thing. But if the attitude is, is I can't touch it, I can't smell it, I can't see it, it's not there, then you're unwilling to do that. You don't want to wear a mask. If you want to hang you just don't understand the importance of social distancing. Uh, some places, like some of the big box stores, had you know, things lined in supermarkets, marked off six feet. People would just ignore the six feet. Yeah. They had little things on the floor. This is six <laughs> feet from that. So Right. Back up. <laughs> back up. So <laughs> the issue is if we can't influence and convince people that um, – part of dealing with this condition is personal responsibility, then uh, we're going to have the ongoing problems. And we've seen that in jurisdictions that previously um, relaxed their rules uh, and then suddenly saw this uptick in people showing up in the emergency room and in the hospitals. The ones who showed up, of course, were sicker and they required resources to be allocated. So you now have 
hospitals in states that did not have the same level of problems overwhelmed. So key thing is we need everyone to own this as uh, part of our uh, obligations in our society, that wearing a mask is an inconvenience, but being deathly ill is more inconvenient. So I heard you say wearing a mask, uh, social distancing, step back, um, sometimes staying, just staying at home. Any other ways we can uh, or that we need to uh, stop the spread of the disease? Well, we should, we should, of course, wash our hands. I don't want to forget the 22nd washing hands. So, so people have developed all sorts of uh, timing uh, things. Wash your hands for 20 seconds at least. Wash the, both the front, the back. Uh, wash it between your fingers and your fingernails. Uh, again, an inconvenience, but, you know, if you've ever been severely ill uh, from anything, that inconvenience is overshadowed by the price you pay from being se severely ill. And if you've got people in your family who are immunocompromised by any condition, then you don't want to be responsible for infecting them. And we've also got some young people who are discovering, much to their chagrin and dismay, that they themselves were immunocompromised. Because yeah. you, you don't always have to be severely ill to be immunocompromised. Mm -hmm. So we've got 25-year-olds and 30-year-olds and 40-year-olds who are dying from um, uh, COVID-19-related conditions. And you know, it's a real tragedy that we are trying to avoid, we need to avoid. Uh, and the only way we can avoid it is if we all hunker down and do what needs to be done. With that, you can go back to the store, you can go back to business, you can, but you've got to be willing to do that. So if you're not willing to wipe down your surfaces, you're not willing to wash your hands, you're not willing to wear a mask, if you're not willing to um, identify whether you have symptoms early in the process, then you do have a problem because you create a problem for the rest of us. You know, we hear a lot about um, testing for COVID-19. What is the importance of testing? And also, if you could just tell us about the types of testing that um, that's available. First of all, we'll start with the two types. There are two tests to determine whether you have what's called an active infection. One is called the polymerase chain reaction or PCR test. Uh, another one is called the antigen test. The PCR test looks for pieces of the virus that causes COVID-19. Uh, it's a test that uh, they look in the nose and the throat and other areas in the respiratory tract to determine if the person has an active infection. That's also true for the antigen test. Nasal swab is taken by a healthcare provider and tested. Uh, sometimes if you've got a rapid test, it can be done while you wait. Uh, other times, it takes up to a week. The third test is what's called a serology test or an antibody test. And this is from a blood sample that is taken and sent to a lab for testing. It tests whether you have a past infection. So the active test, the PCR test or the antigen test, lets you know whether you have an active infection or not. And if you test negative, it means that you don't currently have that infection, but you really do need to take care of yourself by using the things that Belinda talked about, 
mask, hand washing, social distancing, et cetera, because just because you don't have it doesn't mean you can't get it. And that is an important point. Whereas the antibody test says you had it and that uh, you now uh, have antibodies uh, as a result of having the problem with the, it's not the test, the problem with having antibodies is for some diseases, if you got antibodies, you get uh, immunity that lasts for a while. We're not sure about uh, the SARS-CoV-2 uh, situation. Uh, there has been some indication that you may only have immunity that lasts for a couple of months if you have it that. So we are still getting data. <laughs> so the key issue is if you have the um, antigen test, PCR test or the antigen test, be careful. You don't have it today. You might get it tomorrow. If you have the antibody test, be careful. You had it. You're obviously better because you're walking around getting tested, but don't get cavalier about it. So those are the two tests. Those are the three tests that are, are given. So um, people develop, if you're going to become symptomatic, again, about 12 days from your exposure. So be careful. Those are the, uh, the tests. The significance of the testing is it's often hard to get tests. I was just on a webinar earlier, and there was an island in Florida where everybody got tested. It's a private island. Very rich people. They all managed yeah. to get tested. Yeah. And then there was a, the gentleman who did the presentation also pointed out there was a jail, and then it's not too far away. Nobody could get tested. Uh, so... And then early in the testing process, we heard, gee, Sam Smith from the NBA or John Doe from the hockey. Uh, oh, yeah. They all got tested. But like immediately. Immediately. <laughs> but nobody else could get tested. So the availability of testing and is uh, an issue. And then some people have to wait a week. I had a friend who waited a whole week and still hadn't heard about her test. So... Those are things that you have to take into consideration in terms of the resources available to make tests available. The United States started more slowly than other countries like South Korea and uh, China. And so uh, we had a situation where um, we didn't test, we didn't know, and people just weren't in concern. So now we've got more testing available we really shouldn't blame the testing. We should use the testing as a way of informing us of what to do in our homes and in our community. So if you are negative from the um, PCR test or the antigen test, uh, stay safe by social distancing, hand washing, mm -hmm. wearing a mask. If you are positive, uh, that means you have active infection. If you're asymptomatic, you still want to isolate for um, two weeks approximately to make sure you don't become symptomatic. If you're an asymptomatic carrier, even though you don't become symptomatic, that same two weeks applies because it means that you want to avoid exposing other people, young people, older people um, mm. with your condition. It has had substantial impact. People can't go to weddings. People can't go to funerals. Uh, so people are being inventive, Zoom weddings, Zoom funerals, or postponed 
graduation ceremonies. People are figuring it out. And other people are saying, uh, what me worry? And they go and they go party. There was a case in where some young people were having, in, shall we say, exposure parties. Let's have a COVID-19 party and see who gets the infection first. You know, it was uh, fairly yeah. daring. Yeah, so so let's let's take a step back and look at this. So we've got this infectious disease. We've got evidence that it's spreading very quickly and that it's presenting itself globally. It has, in effect, shut down economies across the, the, the world. Businesses can't operate. Schools can't operate. We're being told how you can stop it from spreading. Uh, we're also being told that there is some form of testing and they're trying to find, I guess, a cure for it. So how long does this last? Uh, what should we expect moving forward? And in, in just as a country, the U.S., are we winning the war against this virus or are we losing? Uh, <laughs> Fortunately, you get a jurisdiction by jurisdiction uh, response. So some states are doing very well. Other states are not doing so well. Some states, people are cooperating, and that's why they're doing well. Other states, people are saying, I'm tired of all of this social isolation and not being able to go to the bar and not being able to party, so uh, you're not getting that cooperation. So as, I, as you pointed out earlier, some states like Texas and Arizona and Florida were, seemed to be moving in the right direction, and then boom, the party started to happen. So people value the economy to the, over their public health, and we recognize that there is this balancing act that you have to do. But the balancing act, the economy is preserved by people cooperating if people are not going to cooperate. So the only way I can go to a bar is to expose myself to everybody else, then that's a problem. The only way I go to a restaurant is to expose myself to everybody else, that's a problem. Um, and it's having a substantial impact. Because from a workplace uh, perspective, who's responsible for those people? So those states that shut down and now that their hospitals are being taxed, they've had to step back and say, oh, wait a minute. Uh, we thought this was about civil liberties. We thought this was about the Constitution. It is really about an infectious disease, mm -hmm. <laughs> so, yeah. uh, which is yeah. not in any place I can find in the Constitution or the Bill of Rights. You've been listening to Today's Workplace with Barbara Johnson and Belinda Reedshan. If you like what you heard, click subscribe so you don't miss out on future updates and episodes. For more information about today's episode, check out todaysworkplace.com. That's T-O-D-A-Y-S-W-O-R-K-P-L-A-C-E dot com.